Talking Migration. I'm Clara Sanderlind and this podcast is supported by the Department of Politics and the Migration Research Group at the University of Sheffield. And I just want to remind you that you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher or Acast. The images of children in cages separated from their parents at the US-Mexico border have upset people across the world. Part of the so-called zero tolerance policy against so-called illegal migration, everyone crossing the border, even to apply for asylum, becomes subject of uh, criminal prosecution. To facilitate this, almost 2,000 children have been separated from their parents. But why is it happening now and is it even new? What's being done to reunite the families, if anything? Who are the people trying to cross the border and what about their right to apply for asylum? To answer these questions and many more, I've spoken to Gabriela Sanchez, who's a research fellow at the Migration Policy Centre at the European University Institute. I started by asking Gabriela Sanchez why children are being separated from their families at the border and what the legal basis for this is. First of all, we need to keep in mind that the practice of family separation is not new. This has been happening all along um, and it's not unique to the U.S.-Mexico border. It acquired you know, a lot of attention primarily because of the fact that very young children were represented. You know, that There were multiple videos and pictures and um, coverage that was coming involving the separation of very young children from their families. But um, let's, um, keeping that in mind, um, this is also rooted in some allegations on the part of the U.S. government and specifically the Secretary of Homeland Security um, in regard to an an increase in the number of um, people who had arrived to the U.S.-Mexico border. And... This was there was indeed a slight increase in the number of arrivals of in terms of you know and, and there's uh, all of this terminology that is connected with the people who arrive, but that month when the when um, Secretary Nielsen Nielsen first reported on this was an outlier. You know, if we look at the numbers of people who are arriving to the U.S.-Mexico border longitudinally over a series of a number of years you will see that the numbers are actually at the lowest they have been in, you know, almost decades. Right. So, but we got into this um, war of numbers, right, over um, people arriving or not arriving. But the the illusion that this creates is that there's thousands of people showing up at the border, uh, many of them with children. And so the U.S. government used some of these images and some of these numbers to decide that the best way to deal with this was to come up with a, with a policy that they call zero tolerance policy in terms of anybody who was in, um, who intended to enter the United States without proper documentation was going to be charged criminally. And in the event that they had, that they were coming with their children, that, that they were going to be separated from the children. So that was, you know, kind of a, a bit of a background of how, how everything happened. And again, this, um, the policy was in a sense, or the intention rather to put the policy into practice is also not new. This had actually been initially articulated by the former Secretary of Homeland Security at some point, but, um, and then by Attorney General Sessions earlier this year. 
But then it, it went into effect, right? It, it was actually, it started to, um, it, 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 it was implemented along the border. And that was when there was um, this international uproar over um, the separations. But again, this was not new. It's not unique to the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, it, it just happened to have even more visibility because of the context, the political context of the, of the United States and indeed the magnitude of um, the um, the separations or the apprehensions and then the separations as well. Hmm. So did it not require any new legislation? Was this possible all along um, on the basis of current legislation? Um, so there's a couple of things because there's also been this uh, mutual blaming, you know, um, between um, Congress and the White House. All along on the U.S.-Mexico border, whenever a family would show up, and by family here we're talking about parents and children, um, the decision to separate them or perhaps to put the mother and children in one facility and um, the fathers in a different one was pretty discretionary. You know, it was something that was decided uh, many times at the point of entry depending on the um, the condition that the family um, presented at the time they um, presented themselves to, to immigration authorities. What the practice pretty much, um, in a sense, formalized was the fact that um, people were going to start being charged, that, that, um, that the people were going to start facing criminal charges. And also this, this sense of family separation. So until then, this had not happened. Again, the, the children had been uh, most of the time allowed to, to stay with a parent or also to go to a local shelter while the, their decision was where their status was decided, their initial interview and the determination of, of their ability to um, um, apply or qualify for, for some sort of relief was established. But what zero tolerance meant was an immediate separation you know, of parents from their children. So you say they're facing criminal charges. So, you know, what, what is actually these charges they're facing? And I assume that a lot of people crossing the border actually want to seek asylum. Mm -hmm. So how is the right to seek asylum compatible with this zero tolerance policy of so-called illegal border crossings? Right. So this is something that the media has been, um, have been getting wrong all along. Many of these people have not entered the country. So they are not undocumented migrants as you know, many newspapers or, or many news agencies have um, labeled them. They are people who have arrived to the U.S.-Mexico border and who have presented, them, presented themselves to immigration authorities looking for some sort of relief. And so they are people, again, who have not been legally admitted into the country. Entering the country without documentation, so without inspection, without submitting yourself to inspection, rather, used to be an administrative offense, something that was really not, that had no no criminal penalties or implications. That has changed over time. Um, some migrants would be initially, if, they, if it was the first time that they were apprehended, they would perhaps just face um, some time in detention. And then they would be charged criminally if they reattempted um, to enter and got caught. At this point, what we're seeing is the implementation of, uh, what, again, what has been called zero tolerance, right? That once you 
if you arrive, if you enter the country, that you will face criminal charges. At the same time, a lot of advocates and immigration scholars have warned over what over the impact of this decision on immigration courts that are already taxed with very large um, um, numbers of cases that are backlogged. So by now, by filing charges against anybody who would attempt to enter the country, you know, was most likely going to, to create an even more backlogged system. So as you can see, there's there's all of this um, all of these categories that are coming together, and how how designations or labels over the status of people become entangled into all of this in the sense um, machinery of, of a criminal and criminalized system. I don't know if that's in the sense. So that, so um, are you saying that some people who arrive at the border and present themselves to immigration authorities, some of them might want to seek asylum, but some of them um, might, um, I don't know, want to seek some other kind of status or? Mm -hmm. uh... To our knowledge, uh, most of the people who are arriving at the border and who are presenting themselves to immigration authorities do so because they are seeking asylum. Right. The majority of those who are arriving to the U.S.-Mexico border are people from Central American, you know, from Central America, and um, people from Mexico are no longer migrating at the same levels they used to. The majority of the people who are who present themselves to immigration authorities do so because they are seeking asylum. There is no need for them to try to quote unquote sneak through the border or to cross the border with, uh, with the help of a smuggling facilitator. They are um, migrants and people in, seek of, uh, in search of protection are arriving to ports of entry and, and again, on many occasions, turning themselves to immigration authorities or presenting themselves rather to immigration authorities seeking for protection or relief. And, and this is, um, so this is, this is one group of people there are many other people who are also arriving at the U.S.-Mexico border and, and who are arriving at the U.S.-Mexico border and who are not being admitted. Uh, we just had a case a couple of days ago of a woman and her two children that were coming all the way from Cameroon. And once they arrived to, the, to a port of entry in the city of El Paso, they were denied entry saying, you know, they were sent back. So like, well, you know, immigration told them, come back tomorrow. This is another practice that we're seeing um, all along the U.S.-Mexico border. Immigration authorities discouraging people from applying for asylum, saying that there's no room on the other side, that they can wait until the next day. So this is also creating um, this kind of stagnant, and I don't like the word it sounds, but uh, stuck population along on the Mexican side of the U.S.-Mexico border. Mm. These are people who are coming in with very little resources, um, fleeing conditions of um, of violence, not only that is related to organized crime, but also um, intimate partner violence, or, or or trying to flee very complex um, contexts. So you are seeing once again not only the people who are presenting themselves uh, to the authorities, but also those who are attempting to attempting to arrive or attempting to reach this protection and who are being turned away. Right. So. Um, the people who have been um, 
charged now and who have been separated from their children is there any basis for them to go on and actually apply for asylum many of the people who arrive at the border and who are applying for asylum or, or another kind of protection do have valid claims and in this sense one of the concerns is the fact that they are not being even granted the opportunity to share those concerns or to express that need for protection that they are either denied entry into the country or they are being immediately returned or um, placed in detention mm-hmm. um, so that is one um, that is one layer if you want to call it of the of the experience so so when you've been a uh, mm-hmm. charged and then separated from your child because mm-hmm. you are i assume need to be uh, heard and there's some hearing or something mm-hmm. is if you say that you know i want to apply for asylum would you then be allowed to do so or 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 would there still be some sort of penalty because mm-hmm. uh because you supposedly crossed the border illegally or just trying to kind of understand what actually happens, what is the process, what happens to these people? Mm-hmm. Well, if the system worked the way it should, <laughs> people should, have been, should be allowed to approach an immigration official on the border um, who will take an initial declaration, and then this person would um, um, allow the 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 um, petitioner, right, the, the person who has solicited the relief or the protection to um, to enter the country while some determination of the, the claims um, is made. What we're seeing at this point is uh, it's a complete mess. Let's just put it this way. <laughs> there is really no, no, no clarity in terms of who is being allowed to enter, what is happening to some of these families, there is this widespread sense that many of them are simply being separated and placed in detention facilities. Um, there is also a, a practice that it ha- has now become more visible, but again, that something that has been happening all along are these mass hearings where people are pretty much told you know, that they can um, that they don't have to stay in detention that as long as they are okay with being removed from um, from the U.S. that they would just, you know, have to sign a paper and leave. But this also means that they are uh, waiving any kind of possibility for future relief. Many of the families who are being separated, many of the parents who are being separated are because they are not everybody's getting access to legal counsel. So it's a kind of a parenthesis. In the United States, the state is not required to provide you with legal counsel for immigration court. So these parents um, go um, in these mass hearings um, without any kind of um, legal assistance, and they are pretty much told you have the option of staying here in detention for an indefinite period of time, or you can just go back home. You decide. And for many of them, and, and what made this crisis even more more visible. This crisis on the part of the state. It's not a crisis on migration. It's a, it's a crisis on the, the migration system. Um, was the fact that there was no clear sense of what or of where the children of many of these parents were, who was taking care of them, or what were the the, the circumstances they were under. So many of the parents will go to court and say, "Well, my decision depends on my ability to to be reunited with my child." 
And on many of these cases, uh, not, not many, the majority of these cases, the state had no information regarding the child. So this also generated a lot of uh, concern and pressure on uh, um, the U.S. government to identify where, who the kids were, who the children were, where they were located, and to also devise, come up with some sort of mechanism that would allow for family reunification. And I suppose that that makes the whole asylum process extremely complicated as well. If you have that extra pressure that you don't actually know where or where your child is or when you might be united with your child. Exactly. So this was, in fact, a mechanism to deter any kind of application, right? Um, even though all along as migration scholars, we have said this is not going to work. This is not going to stop people from migrating. Mm -hmm. So enforcement through the deterrence you know, has really not proven to be effective in, you know, in many of its modalities. Yeah. And But this, once again, this has created uh, or led to the separation of parents from their children. Many parents have been deported, removed back to their countries of origin, uh, while their children have stayed within the United States. Also, many parents may have criminal records as a result, most of the time, of petty offenses, uh, a traffic case, um, perhaps, you know, just very low-level offenses. Mm. And this is also preventing them um, from reuniting with their children on the basis precisely that of them having a, some sort of criminal background. And the, through which they are also um, subjected to deportation. So there's, there's again, all of, we see the um, convergence of the criminal justice system with the immigration system, you know, both of them coming together and facilitating, in the sense, the removal of the, the adult and um, sorry, also, as a consequence, uh, leading to family separation. Yeah, and I was going <clears> to <throat> ask you, because obviously there's been a lot of uh, pressure, not least international pressure, for um, family reunification in these cases. So what, what are the recent developments in terms of trying to reuni reunite um, parents with their children? Mm -hmm. So as of this morning, and today is it's Friday morning, the New York Times reported that only 264 of the 2,500 cases, you know, the, the 2,500 children who were known to have been separated from their parents had been reunited. So this is only about not, a, not even 11%, I would think. Yeah. So it's about 10%, less than 10% of the children. Mm -hmm. um, one of the, the arguments of the United States government is that they are, that the parents need to be cleared, you know, for, in order to be reunited with, with their children. Um, a, um, and what does that mean to be cleared? To be clear, it is to make sure that they don't have any criminal records that could put in, in them or the child in danger. Right. Um, or who have, you know, again, committed any kind of offense that would put the child um, at risk. Um, in the sense as if family separation was not <laughs> risky enough. <laughs> but um, a court, um, a, a U.S. judge ordered the, the U.S. government to reunite the children with their with their parents and gave them until July 27th. So that will be next week till um, it, it was it was a deadline that was established um, in order for them to reunite um, all the all the children with their parents. But as you can see, they would pretty much just have what is it less than a week, mm -hmm, about six days, 
to reunite the the um, the remaining um, almost 2,200 children with with family members. Um, the court also ordered that the United States government had to cover the costs of reunification because something that that advocates had also realized was that the families were asked to pay for plane tickets to reunite their children, you know, or to bring the children home or to send them with a relative. And in and some of the costs that were involved in, in you know, sending a child or, or, um, or, or having a child fly by him or herself, you know, wearing hundreds of dollars for families who were not necessarily very well off. So this was already causing this level of, of um, stress on the family. So that's why the court decided that, no, it, it was the U.S. government responsibility to also cover those expenses. It's still to be seen, right? it's yet to be seen what, what is going to happen if the, if the government is actually going to um, make the, the deadline. And um, what has been, once again, all along uh, this matter of concern is the fact that it's unbelievable that the government cannot come with an effective system, that there was never um, a system to track the children, to know where they were, and that this points um, where this political tension and the use of, of family separation as a political bargain. So is it quite... <clears throat> Sorry, is it quite common uh, then for the parents to have already been deported from the U.S. and the children uh, remaining in the U.S.? Um, we don't have exact numbers on uh, yeah. those cases. Again, I think I think the most, um, you know, the, the um, I think the recent developments have made some of these practices more visible. If um, when it comes to the U.S.-Mexico border, this is something that we had seen all along. You know, parents being charged not only with immigration-related offenses, but sometimes, again, with petty crimes, uh, with um, traffic offenses, and being removed from the countries leading to family separation. And the children having to stay behind with um, other family members or perhaps with the other parent. Um, so this was, in a sense, another form of family separation. There's uh, that that has been um, that had been a, a constant element of the experience of of the families of undocumented migrants, or again those who have become criminalized or sent back to their countries of origin. The um, the the gravity of the most recent developments made some of these cases more visible, but again, it it doesn't mean that they hadn't happened in the past. Yeah, but I. <clears throat> I assume that it would be easier to reunite the families where both are still in the US. Um, mm -hmm. And I mean, I, I, the the images that everyone's been seeing, which has made the this uh, situation so um, you know cause such outrage, is these images of their children in cages, mm -hmm. um, and you know with those specific children it, it would I mean just from a um, just from a layman you know point of view it would seem like the reunification there shouldn't be so difficult mm -hmm. right and this is one of the criticisms that um, political parties and um, their organizations and migrant advocates have voiced the fact that there have to be there should have been from the very beginning 
um, some sort of database or mechanism to trace or and to have a very clear notion of where everybody was, of who the children were and um, who was a responsible adult who could um, take care of them or claim them in the event the parent um, was uh, deported or had to remain in detention for an indefinite period of time. So there's been all of this, um, um, not only the, 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 the outrage, right, that, is, that has been connected with the, the separation, but also with the lack of um, willingness on the part of Homeland Security to actually establish a mechanism from the very beginning that would allow for reunification to take place. Mm, right. So they obviously know where the children are because they've put them in cages, but they don't know necessarily where the parent is, then that's the problem. Or maybe the parent is in detention and the children can't be in the detention with the parent. Um, I would say it's a combination. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's uh, sometimes the children are not. Um, so there's, of course, these images of the cages that happen. Yeah. Very, um, they're everywhere. Um, there are, in fact, detention-like facilities um, across the United States where many of the children have been sent to. Um, there's also perhaps uh, the cases when a family member was actually contacted and he or she was able to go and claim the child um, while the, the parent remained in detention. So there's um, all, all sorts of experiences at this point, right? Parents who have been deported and without their children, um, children whose whereabouts are not known, um, relatives who are trying to determine in what kind of facility um, a parent is being detained while they are taking care of the children. This has, again, taxed not only parents and children, um, but also the relatives in both countries, you know, the country of origin, and of course, within the United States. Mm. And speaking of the country of origin, do you, do we know um, who the people are who are crossing more recently? If you say there's, well, you said actually that it was an outlier, so the recent kind of little sp spike or yeah, is is actually um, an outlier in the in the trend of uh, reducing or decreasing numbers. But um, but do we know something about who the people are who have been subject to this policy? The majority of the people who are being apprehended by um, border patrol, so this is um, along the U.S. southern border, are people from Central America, primarily from um, Guatemala, um, El Salvador, and Honduras. Um, then there is... Um, this is, this is followed by people who, of Mexican origin. There are um, also growing numbers of people from other countries. Some of the conditions or some of the, the, yeah, some of the current security conditions in South America have also led people from places like Brazil or Venezuela or even Ecuador to um, arrive to the U.S.-Mexico border and requesting some level of protections and then in many cases filing um, petitions for, for asylum. But most of the ones that are arriving at this point in time are people from Central America. Now, when it comes to the children, and, and I think this is something that has really not been discussed much, the United States does not disaggregate data in terms of um, age, 
or sex. So when we say children, most of the images that we have seen pertain to very young children. So um, you have probably seen that babies that are crying or the recordings of children or the reenactment of court hearings involving very young children. Because there is really no clear data from the United States government concerning the numbers of the, concerning the children, who they are and what their ages are. We really don't, um, there is no, there, there's not a clear understanding of who they are. Um, some of the research that we have carried out at the Migration Policy Center um, is actually relying on data that is provided by the Mexican government. And in terms of the, the, the apprehensions also of Central American um, children who are crossing through the country. We're using this data as a proxy, you know, thinking that, well, most of the people who are trying to reach the United, the U.S.-Mexico border um, travel through Mexico. So in a sense, the population is very likely to be similar. And what this data suggests is that only about a third of the children are under the age of 11. The other two thirds are very likely teenagers. So these are primarily boys between the ages of 12 and 17. Um, again, this doesn't disregard the fact that very young children are being separated from their parents. But um, it, 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 at the same time, there has to be a level of complexity in, in, you know, when it comes to how we understand what is happening on the border. What we, the majority of the children who are being separated from their parents are most likely um, to be teenagers, you know, again, from the ages of 12 to 17. And um, many of them may actually um, may be traveling or may be designated on accompanied children. So this is, um, again, not to take attention away from the fact that very young children are being put into very dangerous conditions, but that even the population that is being separated is very diverse. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what's the, um, finally, perhaps, what is the political mood for changing this policy across different parties in the U.S.? Um, the uproar is, you know, if you have um, followed the, the development of the story, it's already going away. <laughs> There's, um, and, and this is part of a critique that many of us who are or who live along the U.S.-Mexico border, who carry out research on the U.S.-Mexico border, have expressed. The fact that the border becomes this, this point of interest, you know, in, uh, at, at, in moments like this. Um, now, you know, the, the uh, media moving to the next crisis. And the same happens with politicians. Um, as the, the story has, in a sense, lost its punch, um, the, the interest or the, to produce any kind of political changes or, 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 or just to engage in any kind of viable reform is pretty non-existent. We don't see um, any kind of political compromise on either party to really act or to enact any kind of, of change. One um, act that kind of you know, gave people a little bit of hope was the, the condemnation right, that, that preceded the um, signing of the executive order. Um, but it was not, it was very short-lived. And at this point, there is really no um, 
neither party has um, given any signs of being willing to engage in any kind of reform or, or change that may actually provide any kind of relief to the children or their families. So do Democrats not uh, pursue um, policies that would be critical of the current uh, ones either? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of, you know, um, there, there's been condemnation, right, and, and this yeah. uproar. But, um, again, these are part of the political cycles that are many times you know, that come from Washington, D.C., but that completely ignore the conditions on the border or the people of the border. So there's really, at, at this point, no other than the, the efforts from the local communities, the shelters, um, civil society along the U.S.-Mexico border, there is no political will to engage in any kind of effective change. Is there anything you feel we've missed that you want to add? Perhaps, once again, to keep in mind the fact that none um, none of these practices is new. It's not unprecedented. I mean, they are not unique to the U.S.-Mexico border. And I keep repeating this um, because the sense that they are that they are new or that they have never been seen in the country um, pretty much obliterate the experiences of, of generations of, of people who have endured the uh, family separation. So we need um, analysis that look beyond the violence and that, you know, that, that has often been used as an explanation for the arrival or just a justification of the, the arrival of so many migrants to the U.S.-Mexico border. And also situate this as part of a, of a much bigger context of immigration enforcement. And um, that, again, is not new to the Trump administration, but it has been building up you know, um, for, for the last three or four administrations. And I suppose, as many people have pointed out as well, in Europe, uh, even though children might not be separated from the families at the border, many countries make it quite difficult for um, migrants and refugees to be um, reunited with their families, um, mm-hmm. even when they've gained official status. Correct. So this is, in, and this is another aspect that we keep seeing, the, the growing... Uh, limitations that are imposed in family reunification and how at the same time this are um, many occasions the motivation that the people have to leave their countries and being able um, by any means necessary to reach their families and to become reunited. To find out more about the work of Gabriela Sanchez please visit our website talkingmigration.com. That was all for this time, thank you for listening.